0: Let's not waste any time. There's a lot of scriptures today, as usual. So Acts 17, uh, if you're taking notes, the church who upsets the world. Everybody ready to upset the world today? (laughs) Straight out of the book of Acts, by the way. I didn't make that phrase up. Um, Four characteristics of the church who upsets the world. So if you're following along, there's four simple points today. Four characteristics of a church who upsets the world, and that is our calling. You know, if culture says, do not rock the boat, the deconstructionists are creating a vacuum in our culture, and we must fill it with the word, right? Have you ever asked the question of, you know, if these, these deconstructionists are deconstructing our culture, the family, the school system? The church ultimately, then who's going to lead it? Because if you dismantle something, somebody's going to build it, right? We are meant to build that. God has called us. He has everything that we need in the word of God, whether it has to do with family or education or the church. This is our world. This is God's world. And he has called us to upset the world in a way that's not to cause any sort of uh, distractions or be mean-spirited about it, but we are called to upset the world. And that's exactly what the apostles and the, the missionaries did in this next city. And I'll show you how they did that because I believe that that is exactly what we're supposed to do. And how we're supposed to do that is we are to be courageous, number one. Number two, we'll unpack all these. Number two is that we're called to preach the word, preach truth, unashamed. Number three, to invest in others. This is exactly what Paul did. And then endure opposition, only then to do it again in another city. So I'm not sure if this was part of your goal to come to Washington, D.C. and literally upset the city, but that is exactly what God has called us to do. And how we do that is we, again, look at the word, and everything is obviously not the way it's created to be, right? As we start with Genesis, as I'm going through again, I'm, I'm starting with Genesis, and I'm going all the way through. I'm somewhere in the middle of Exodus already, and it is just incredible to see God's perfect plan in the garden. We, we've got to know, again, Genesis 1 through 3 is so important But this is not exactly the way God created this world to be. But we know that in Revelation how it ends and that God is going to end this. And he is going to ultimately destroy the earth and he will come back for his people. So I know we jokingly say it doesn't matter if you throw your recycling in what can these days. Because ultimately (laughs) Jesus is going to annihilate the earth. And I mean that in a hopeful way and that we want to know him and that God is, the, is, we know how this thing is actually the end, how it's going to end. But in the meantime, God is patient, desiring that nobody perishes. Now, we know people will perish, but we have that heart and we desire as we go on the streets that we desire that nobody perishes. We desire that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of Jesus. In the meantime, God is bringing people to himself. And ultimately, he uses his prophets and his apostles throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. As we see people drawing, we see his men that he raises up and draw people to Christ in the New Testament and to himself and the Old. And unfortunately, not all of them have been received well. And I think we want to start with that this morning, just as a way of introduction, because starting with Elijah, if you guys know the story of Ahab and Jezebel in First Kings sixteen thirteen because 30, we'll, we'll kind of parallel that. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, there's a lot of people like, oh, it's getting worse and worse and worse. In one sense, maybe that's true. In another sense, it, you know, we've said over and over, because this was taken in the time of the Roman government, it's not as bad as Rome in that sense, Right. But as these apostles or these prophets were being raised up, they were not well received. And I think that is important as you go on the streets this week, knowing that you may not be received well. And Elijah was the first. 1 Kings 16:30 Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. In 1 Kings 21:25, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do good, or to do, I'm sorry, to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And then 1 Kings seventeen one. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was one of the sell- settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, God called him to pronounce judgment until there was repentance. In a way, he was compared to what in the New Testament? Who's compared to John the Baptist? Elisha. He was the forerunner. He was the one that said, the day of judgment is coming. And God is about to lay his axe at the root and breed judgment on the earth. In 1 Kings 18, 17, when Ahab saw Elisha, this is kind of humorous in a way, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? (laughs) Jeremiah also got this kind of name. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. Thus says the Lord, this city will certainly be given into the hand of the enemy or the army in the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Then the official said to the king, now let this man be put to death speaking of, a lot of Jeremiah, is inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in the city and all the people by speaking such words to them, for this man is not seeking the well-being of the people, but rather their harm. Amos, the same way. Amos 7, verse 10 and 12, says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel saying Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel the land is unable to endure all his words for thus Amos says Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into into exile then Amaziah said to Amos go you seer flee away to the land of Judah and there eat bread and there do your prophesying they were not well received, were they? They were simply just speaking the word of the Lord. Paul, in the book of Acts, it says, in Acts 13, or I'm sorry, 16, says, or I'm sorry, let's, let's back up. Acts 6, 13, they said, they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. These were religious speak, people speaking. And then in Acts 16, which we just read not that long ago, and, then, and when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Does this sound familiar in the news? Someone was actually just arrested for preaching one man and one woman marriage in London. It's here. Acts 22.22, they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow. They're speaking of to Paul towards the end of his life. From the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Acts 24.5, for we have found this man to be a real pest. <laughs> and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world and the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarites, uh, Nazarenes. In other words, we're going to be called pests. If we actually live by this and we upset the world by preaching the gospel, by preaching truth, by investing in others, by being courageous, and if we get rejected in one city and we move on to another, people will call us Pests. People will, might even say such a thing as saying, this person, just ca- they just caused division. Christians caused division. That's what they're doing. Or they'll just say flee, or maybe just even this person's not even allowed to live. And in the book of Acts, as we look at Acts 17, you'll see this. Paul was kicked out of two cities. And it says in verse one here in Acts 17, now when they had traveled through Ephesus Amphiph- uh, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where the, there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, "'This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ.'" And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of Greek or God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people and they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and, and some brethren before the city authorities shouting these men who have upset the world have come here also and Jason has welcomed them some translation says they've turned the world upside down and Jason has welcomed them and they were all all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king his name is Jesus and they stirred up the crowd And the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. In verse 10, it says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, like tradition. And now that they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word, and with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Very familiar verse. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. There's literally nothing new under the sun. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. And we'll pick that up tomorrow, the rest of that, in chapter 17. But number one, we need courage, don't we? We can't just waltz right out on the mall or wherever we go, wherever we might find ourselves, as soon as the borders begin to open overseas overseas. We need courage. Like a lot of us want to actually share the gospel and see people come to Christ, but as soon as we're out there, we realize that we need power, and that power does not come from knowledge. It comes from the Spirit. This mission team was resilient. In fact, when they were kicked out of Philippi, they had to go 100 miles. Can you imagine going 100 miles in three days? Not in a Tesla But by foot, a lot of scholars say that they probably were on horse. Someone gave them maybe the church in Philippi, the new church. Maybe Lydia had some and gave them to Paul and his companions. But still, nonetheless, 100 miles in three days, pretty exhausting. And they came to somewhat of a commercial center in Greece. Thessaloniki is now the new word or the modern-day Thessalonica in Greece. And then to Berea. And you can go to these places now, but they, they were resilient. If you remember, they met uh, Lydia. They started a church, and then they met the demon-possessed girl. Remember the medium that was giving people false prophecies and fortunes? And then he casted out that demon. They lost their business. Paul was unjustly put in prison, beaten, and then the earthquake happened, let him out. And then uh, the jailer got saved and his family, and then Paul, uh, being stubborn, wanted to save that church from more persecution, said, no, you come into my jail cell, and you bring me out so that everyone understands you cannot do this. It's unjust. To Roman citizens, which was the city of Philippi, most of them were. And so that church obviously grew. There's a uh, letter to the Philippians And now we make our way into Thessalonica. These are the fun chapters of Exodus, uh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm in Exodus, in the book of Acts. And these are the fun chapters, meaning that starting with 15, where they were going to Galatia, or 14, Galatia, those are the church of the Galatians. And then as you make your way into 16, to Philippi, and 17, you got Thessalonians, and 18, Corinthians, and 19, Ephesus. And so you're seeing the, Really, out of the book of Acts come all these letters that you read, and now you can make a connection. In fact, the same way that when you read your Bibles, when you read the uh, Kings or Chronicles, out of those passages in the Old Testament, you're reading all the prophets. And so your Bible's not necessarily in order in that sense, but that you take the prophets and you stick it in the historical books, and, and now your Bible makes a little bit more sense. Courage is absolutely necessary to finish the Great Commission. If you're going to be in this game for the long haul, you better get yourself some courage. When the enemy's on your back, when you're ridden with fear, the fear of man or fear of losing your life or social suicide or whatever that might look like for you, we're gonna need courage to finish this task that God gave us. So many get out of the game so early because of fear. That's the purpose. If the enemy throws you a curveball of fear, he knows it works. We need courage. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but power, love, and a sound mind, right? Or discipline, Acts 20, this is Paul's heart to the Ephesians. He says in Acts 20, 22, 24, says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me. There, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that in bonds and afflictions wait for me. I think it's a joke when people say, never give a negative prophetic word. Well, there you have it. Where these superficial Christians or movements that you find, they're like, never, the rule of thumb is never give anybody a negative word. Really? Well, what in the world is that? In fact, prophecy is to give truth. Right? From the Bible. But I do not consider my life, he says. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. This man was caught from a, cut from a different cloth. He was different. He says, I do not consider my life of any account dear to myself so that I might finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of grace, of the grace of God. In other words, what was Paul saying? It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is my relationship with Christ and the purpose that he gave me. Fear is irrelevant. In fact, it's part of the deal, and he understood that. John Fox, which is a uh, you know the Fox of Book of Martyrs, I've introduced many times. Listen to this. He wrote this in the about the first century Christians. It says after the respite, the Christians again came under persecution. This time from Marcus Aurelius in AD sixty one. One of those who suffered this time was, name was Polycarp, the venerable Bishop of Smyrna. And as he entered the stadium with his guards, you know the stadium, he's going to die, be ripped to shreds. A voice from heaven was heard to say, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one nearby saw anyone speaking, but many people heard the voice, brought before the tribunal. And the crowd, Polycarp, refused to deny Christ, although the proconsul begged him, saying, Consider yourself and have pity on your great age. He was a very old man at that time. I think he was his 80s. Reproach Christ, and I will release you. This is what he said. Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him. And Christ never once wronged me. How can I possibly blaspheme my king who has saved me? And threatened with the wild beasts and fire, Polycarp stood his ground. That's courage. One pastor says this, Cowardice asks the question, Is it safe? The consensus asks the question, Is it popular? These all sound familiar, these voices? But courage asks the question, is it right? Is it right? True courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to proceed in spite of it. You know that little thing you get in your throat before you share the gospel? It's just as real as a being threatened by a sword in the Middle East or threatened a prison. In North Korea, fear is real. So of course, it takes on many different forms. In America, it just may, you might lose your friends. You might be canceled on social media. Who cares? If you don't have one, it doesn't matter, right? Spurgeon said this, and yet surely there must be some who will fling aside the cowardly love of peace talking about a false peace. Yet, and speak out for the Lord for his truth. A craven spirit is upon man, and their tongues are paralyzed. Oh, for an outburst of truth and faith and holy zeal. Are there people like that here? Absolutely. Amen. There is. They're opposed everywhere. Everywhere he went, he was driven out of cities, and he just kept going. There was resilience. There was fortitude. There was courage. That's what we need, right? We need it. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, this is Paul's mission statement. For For I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion, for woe is me if I don't preach this message. Woe is me. Phillips Brooks says this, this is a good one. Courage, and this is the 1800s. Courage is the indispensable requisite of any true ministry. Courage is good everywhere. But it is necessary here in this room. If you are afraid of man and a slave to their opinion, just go do something else. Go and make shoes fit for people. But do not keep on all your life preaching sermons which say not what God has sent you to declare, but what they have hired you to say. Right? We're called to unleash the truth and let the word do its work. So how do we get courage? I'll just rattle off a, I have three ways you can write this down. The, one, number one is that we, we've got to trust God's word and his character. I love what it says in Psalm 27, one through three, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my defense. Whom shall I dread when the evildoers come upon me and to devour my flesh? My adversaries, my adversaries, excuse me, and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp around me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise around me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. I haven't met one courageous man or woman that does not trust in the character of God. That really know who he is. His father, his defender, his Lord. Psalm 31, 23, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 2, 1. 2 Timothy 2, 1 says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Number two, cu- courage is the confidence in your right standing with the Lord. Now, this is really interesting. Because, you know, there's a lot of people that might have courage. Oh, I know who God is. I'm confident in his word. I got it. But you're ridden with sin in your life. And you know the feeling and it's interesting that you unconfessed sin leads to a lack of courage when you're not right with him. When you don't, when you're not in fellowship with him. You know, first John, or John, the, the gospel of John is it shows you how to be saved. And first John says, Are you saved? It's the assurance of salvation. And one of the tools that The Apostle John gave his audience in his letter to the churches in Ephesus. He said, if you have sin, confess it to the Lord so that you might have fellowship with him. You're not confessing your sin to get saved again and again and again and again and again. again. The problem with the lack of theology in a lot of Arminian theology, if you will is the fact that they're doing altar calls every week and the same people get saved every week because you doubt your salvation all the time rather than being secure. If you feel like there's a a wall between you and the Lord and there's a lack of confidence in your life, maybe he's calling you to confess those sins to him and to each other. Listen to Psalm 7, 1 through 5. O Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if you have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, in other words, if there's sin in me, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him, who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life down to the ground. In other words, I deserve it. And lay my glory in dust. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Who talks like this? In a self-esteem culture, who talks like that? You can't have peace with God on one hand and just lift yourself up all the time and thinking that you have nothing between you and God to deal with. Or you and your neighbor. Psalm 31, 23 says, the Lord preserves the faithful, right, and fully recompenses the proud doer. Oh, he'll judge the sinner every time. But the righteous, meaning, yes, right standing with God, but also in that sense of fellowship, those things that are lingering, that sin, That is, that you've let the foxes in the garden. And that produces a lack of boldness. You know that feeling as you're talking to somebody and you know, you know what? I wasted my Sunday morning in the presence of God or my quiet time. I, I did not do business with God and now I'm in the streets and now here's where it counts. Or I'm in discipleship and I'm telling somebody else to not do the very thing that I'm doing. And now there's a lack of confidence, isn't there? There's a lack of power in your life. And I love that when it says in Psalm 32, just turn there for a moment. In fact, I I just talked to somebody recently when they confessed. They literally said, I was like, man, I feel like I was so hot. I kind of had like hot flashes. I just felt like I had a fever. I'm like, oh, that sounds familiar. That sounds like Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered how blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. This is Psalm 32. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. I couldn't sleep. It was nagging. There was no peace throughout my day. Though my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Did you ever feel the heaviness? My vitality, the life was drained away as with a fever heat of summer. It just felt hot. I felt like, until I confessed. You know, listen, until I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. What wonderful freedom. And that kind of lifestyle produces a sense of confidence. And here lastly, Psalm 51. This used to be my favorite passage in college. So I was constantly always confessing sin over and over and over again. I just go to Psalm 51. I'm like, Lord, are you ever going to get tired of this? <laughs> he says, and I'll pick it up. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. And he's talking about his sin and he's confessing. In verse 10, because I'm making a point here. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then, listen to this, then I will teach transgressors or sinners your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. There is no power when you have unconfessed sin in your life. It's only then that God empowers you to go preach the gospel with such courage and boldness, knowing that same God who forgave you that morning will forgive that man in front of you. That's how it works. Amen. All right. Someone's alive today. And lastly, courage is released when we worship God. I don't have time to go through it all uh, I'll Second Chronicles 20. I love that. It's one of my favorites. He's like, oh, what do I do, Lord? He's, the enemy is approaching. And what did God give him as a strategy, if you remember the Israelites? What did he give him as a, st- a strategy? Prayer and worship. No weapons were involved. God set an ambush, said he rerouted them. In other words, struck them down. Struck them down. What's he gonna do to your enemies? Now he's not talking about I mean, I know there's those were literal people then and, and they are today. But I, I'm talking about even spiritually speaking, the way to get courage is to bow down and worship the king who gives you power to overcome the enemy in evangelism. I'm not intimidated of you or your religion, it's false. It doesn't even, it is not Christianity and Muslim, the Islamic religion. They are not on the same playing field. Like I said, there's only really two religions on the planet. The truth of Christianity and the gospel and every other religion on the planet, including critical race theory. Every other religion on the planet is satanic. Now, you don't necessarily have to tell somebody that. Emphatically, although you'd be right in saying that, but Buddhism is from Satan. He actually said even to the Judaism is satanic. If you remember in John 8, when Jesus said to them, he said, they were saying, look, I'm saved. Right? Remember that in John 8, that conversation they're like, hey, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. I'm saved. My father is Abraham. I'm Jewish, remember? And he said, No, sir. Your father is Satan. And then they called him a demon. Lovely exchange and conversation, isn't that? With God. (laughs) But the way we get courage is through the word, through prayer, confess sin, And through worship. Number two, if you want to upset the world, just keep preaching truth. Number two, preach the gospel. You know, isn't it interesting that we've got to have both courage and sound doctrine? Some of us have a lot of courage, but then when we finally get to preaching the gospel and talking about the gospel, we mention God but no cross. We must preach the offense of the cross. We've, this message is incredibly offensive. And I'll show you through the scriptures how it is. But we've got to get to Ephesians 2 the, that we are children of wrath. Sometimes we get so quick. We're so quick to getting into the conversation. Oh, you're such a daughter of the Lord and you're beautiful and all this kind of stuff. How, how are you going to get from there to you're a sinner and you need God? You just told me all these lovely things about me. And then now you're telling me I'm, the, I'm a child of, of the devil. What do you? Which one am I? <laughs> By the way, it's, it is conditional to be a child of God. And it's through the cross. You cannot tell people they're chi- children of God. They're, yes, they're made in his image. But it is false to just go up to any old... Joe and tell them, yes you're a child of the living God they're not it is clear from Ephesians that they are a child of wrath until they get saved you cannot take the offense out of the gospel and it be the gospel because it says in 1 Peter 2 6 and 8 this is what it says the gospel is offensive and it will upset the world by the way it will upset people For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, listen, the stone which the builders rejected, this this has become the very cornerstone and the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. Isn't it clear in scripture? 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 30. Understand this, as you read this, the Greeks and even the Jews, they had a shame and honor culture. That is their culture. This is when you read this passage, you have to understand That to be well thought of in this culture, and this is going to make a point here, so listen carefully. To be well thought of in this culture is everything. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. To get the Facebook likes is everything. They would have had it too if it was available, and they would have loved it. Can you imagine the Pharisees' website? For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 30, but for us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, and I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. And God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified We have no idea how offensive that cross was at that time because we have we have made it so sentimental we put it on our necks we put it on mugs We put it on a stage. That was a torture device. It it was utterly offensive to even talk about, to even look at. You were considered cursed. If you died on a cross, you were cursed. You were the worst of sinners. They left you hanging there for a long time to make an example of you. And we're talking about a cross to people. I don't even think it makes sense. I mean, I've heard uh, you know theologians or pastors talk about, well, it's kind of like the electric chair or the uh, what is it now, uh, lethal injection. It is not even close. We still we don't understand how incredibly offensive. And so the Jews were looking for a sign, and Greeks they're think this is this is the foolish, this is the most foolish thing. There's no power in this cross. Are you talking about the Son of God, God, Jesus? died on this cross, that doesn't make a lick of sense. Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are, being, who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, for consider your calling, brethren. If there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that which are strong. And the base, the things of this world, and, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. Works, salvation, which is every religion other than Christianity, and I'm even talking the pseudo-Christian ones, the cults, the four major cults that we see today, they're offensive. Why? Because it leaves man out of the equation. That's why. There's something in us that would love to contribute to our salvation, but we can't. But by his doing, you are in Christ the things that are, that no man may boast before God. I'm sorry. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, whom became. To us, wisdom from God, and the righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And then, First Corinthians two, one through five. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness. And in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words or wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Guys, we are obsessed with influence in this culture. We think if only Justin Bieber would get saved, the whole world would get saved. Right? Right? If we just get enough, if we could get ourselves a nice platform, then finally people will listen to this message. As if it will become more popular. Somehow we think we're helping the gospel message by becoming more influential. Like, if only I could become the boss, then I'll become. We we're so obsessed with this. In fact, we disciple this way, don't we? We disciple this way. If only we could get this person, oh, we could. Help them out in their job as we're discipling men in the workplace. We'll just, you know, just continue to work just right so that you could be a model and you can get more influence, and then finally you can talk about this cross, and somehow they'll receive it more. They may not. Listen to this quote by a pastor. It says, "It is foolish to try to make the gospel relevant in our preaching." Pastors believe, that, believe the lie that they must win favor of the world and be influential in order for their ministries to be effective. The gospel does not advance on the back of public favor, but the gospel advances on the back of the Holy Spirit in spite of public hostility. The myth of influence is, if the public thinks we are cool, then they'll think Jesus is cool too. And that is absolutely false. False. It couldn't be further from the truth. This message is absolutely offensive. And it doesn't matter how many likes you have or how much influence you have. In fact, I would say even the more influence you have, you're all, you're, you are on shaky ground. It's more costly for you. The higher you go up on the rung of the ladder, the harder it is. You're going to fall and hurt yourself pretty bad or maybe even take yourself out. Another quote, despite what current trends would have us believe a godly pastor can be ignorant about pop culture, the latest internet memes. He can be ignorant about psychology, about sociology. He doesn't need to be an expert on world events, social movements, or leadership strategies. Being well-versed in movies, music, sports isn't part of the job description either and is often a hindrance to the actual work of ministry. Rather, a pastor must be an expert in the Bible. And so should you. There's always going to be two types of people that will meet. Those who are ready to receive the truth like the Bereans. And those who need persuasion like the Thessalonians. Now, as you meet people on the streets, one of the things you want, to, you want to listen. You want to ask questions. You want to find out where they're at. And some people need Persuasion. They need to be persuaded to Christ, yes. And you might ask, well, where's God's sovereignty in that? He is in that. Don't worry about what, what, if this person's going to be saved or not. Your job is to unleash the truth. And some people are just ready. And we pray for those. But some people will need persuasion. In fact, Paul said he reasoned with the Thessalonians. In other words, he had a Q&A with them. And some people are just curious. They're ready. They, they want to know who God is. They're, they're, they're ready. They're like the Bereans. They search the scriptures. Or like, I'm, I'm sorry. They're, they're like the Thessalonians. They, they, want to, they want to know more. The 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ, Lord, in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with what? Gentleness and respect. Paul explained the scriptures, he not only reasoned with the Thessalonians, he also then explained. What did he explain? Guys, take your Bible into evangelism. Do not be afraid to take this. Don't they, oh, they're going to think I'm a Mormon or something. Well, tell them you're not a Mormon. That's easy. Don't wear a tie and a name badge. But do not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save both Greek and Jew. Do not be ashamed. 1 Corinthians fifteen three and 4, For I delivered to you as first importance for what I've also received, that Christ died for our sins according to what? The Scriptures. And he, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day again according to what? The Scriptures. How important is it to take the Scriptures into your time with others in evangelism and especially in your time in discipleship with others? Luke twenty four, twenty five, and 27 says, And he said to them, O foolish men, Jesus. O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and then with the prophets, he explained, key word, to them the things incur- uh, concerning himself in all the scriptures It is hard to believe Jesus is very clear on that Go through the narrow gate and the few find it Everybody enters the wide one Our culture is coming up with a religion every few years And they're telling everybody to go that direction. It's more peaceful. It's more unifying. It's more inviting. The narrow is way harder, but that is the only way. He actually says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But it is easy for us because we're not in in control of people's souls. That If we have this courage, we're relying on the spirit, we're relying on the word, We're simply just being obedient to the next person he invites us to speak to, right? When we get in the way, it's disastrous, isn't it? But don't take somebody, you know, rejecting you and think, what did I do wrong? We've got to be confident as believers, understanding what the scriptures say. And you should have joy doing it. Didn't they have a lot of joy in Luke 10? You remember that? Oh, Jesus, you're never going to believe this. Satan fell. Isn't that amazing? All these, like, people got healed and all these things happened. Oh. Like, as if Jesus doesn't know how this works. He knew the word. You say, what did he say? The greatest gift you actually, actually have is that your names are written in the book of life. You can walk away from that conversation Knowing two things are confident, the assurance of your salvation and that you have a family to come home to. That's why we do this together, right? That's why we go on mission together, because we need each other. The Bereans receive the word with eagerness, and they examine the scriptures. In other words, that's a judicial exa- uh, words examining evidence to see if it's real. And you want that. You want someone at? Wait, hold on, hold on. What do we hold on? What are you selling me here? What's the cost? What's the catch? Do not be afraid to tell them the cost up front. But they need to be understand that yes, while you want to have q and A Q&A and you want to talk to them and you want to unpack the scriptures, but make sure you're not talking to a Pharisee. As soon as you are, get out of the conversation, ASAP. They're not ready. Do you understand what I'm saying with that? It's very subtle. There are people that need a little bit of help to cross the finish line. It's called, it, it, you know, having a discussion, persuasion, however you want to talk about, however you want to slice, I mean, discussion. What? Discipleship. Yeah. Thanks, honey. My wife. That it, It's important to understand that God is still sovereign in that. We're not manipulating And they're hungry, but that's how they're coming to Jesus, right? Who are you to say how they come? We just are faithful. We're faithful to what he's telling us. And and they may ask questions, and we have to give an answer. It's why we must take our Bibles there and say, I don't know, but I'm so glad that we, we do things two by two because maybe my partner here knows or maybe somebody across the way knows, hey, you know, come over here, I don't know. Or maybe, you know, we have this thing, this gift called the Internet. And you might be able to look it up, or you can text somebody. But then there's others where they will be doing the examination. And you're telling them about the walk with Jesus, and they're examining. Don't be, do not be offended with that, because they might be a Berean. They're testing, they're looking, they're wondering, they're, they're examining, they're testing you. Oh, wait, a, hold on a second. That's a great thing. But understand that they must have a humble and hungry heart, though. Do not waste your time with people that are full of pride. John 5, 39 and 46 says, You search the Scriptures because you think... Listen, they're searching the Scriptures, right? Listen carefully. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is in these that testify about me, about Jesus. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. That was an indictment for sure. John 7, 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, keyword, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. In other words, use the Bible and evangelism and find out, discern, have discernment. And how you get discernment is not some out there thing that just kind of pops in you for a moment. Discernment comes by studying the scriptures, by knowing are things of God or not of God, distinguishing of spirits. This is of God, this is not of God. This conversation, God, do you want me to be here or not? Don't leave if you're not supposed to, but leave if you are supposed to. Have some discretion, as Proverbs talked about. Know what to say, what not to say. Know what to do, what not to do. How to carry yourself. It's very important in evangelism. Show them Jesus through the scriptures, who he is, what he said, what he did. Just show them. Don't say the Bible says, the Bible says this, the Bible. Show them what the Bible says. Let them read it themselves. Now for us, before we get to the next section here, for us, it is important for us to for us to have hunger. First Peter two, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2, it says... Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. All the while, when you're going out and you're in the van, just pray those little whisper prayers. Say, God, give me a hunger for your word. Help me to index and know exactly where to go if this person's asking question. Help me to stay humble and be in, in check with you and your spirit. I want you to guide me. Just a little, it's so it's so simple. It's so simple. And you'll carry peace with you. And you won't be so anxious. Oh, my gosh, should we talk to that person? Should we talk to this person? Just talk to a person. Just go. Talk. What are you going to? Well, I don't know if I heard the Lord. Just go. You don't need to see these guys wondering what to, they just went. They just, they were bold. They wanted someone to be saved. And then, you know, of course, we talked about in Acts 16, God, Redirected. He closed doors. He opened up doors. Trust the Holy Spirit. Second part of that is is 2 Second Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Do not be ashamed on the mission field. And how you do that, you rightly divide the truth. You know it. Second, we need to model godly living. And your shirts give you a nice little reminder, hearers and doers. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who what? Delude themselves. They deceive themselves. They think, ah, oh, yeah, I know the word. I'm good. But they're not living it out. And thus they deceive themselves. And even in that thinking. That's why we need discipleship for someone to watch our swing and say, hey, I don't think you're, you're living that particular part out in the faith. But that helps on the mission field. They have to see The way we live our lives, that is important. That's not everything, but it is important. Ezra 7.10, listen to this, I love this. So For Ezra had set in his heart to study the word, to practice the word, and to teach the word. That's our goal. That should be everybody's mandate. Everybody, because we're all disciple makers, right? And number three, number one, we're going to encourage. Number two, what? Preach the word, preach truth, preach the offense of the truth. If you want to upset the world, and number three, if you really want to upset the world, begin to invest in others and reproduce disciples. Isn't it interesting? I'm reading Exodus. Pharaoh started getting worried when Israel started to multiply. Isn't it interesting? When he started multiplying, he started laying on heavy burdens. It's exactly what the enemy does as soon as we multiply. As long as we stay quiet behind the scenes, no problem. But as soon as we begin to multiply and reproduce each other, it begins to be a threat to the enemy. Second Timothy 2 2 says this the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And look at this. I'll show you that Paul actually raised up people in this in the group here. He didn't just want converts, he didn't just want churches, but he was raising up future evangelists, future leaders, future apostles future people to our plant churches. And I love this. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, and 8, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also, he's talking to the very people, he's writing back to them, but also in, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know that kind of men, we prove to be among you for your sake, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which is just south of Corinth, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have nothing to say. They all became evangelists. It worked. It like it worked. They started multiplying themselves like crazy. And he was just writing back as a dad and just saying, hey, I came to you with encouragement and exhortation. And in Acts 20, verse 4, he accompanying, it says here, it's a little clue here. He, accompanied, he was accompanied by Sopater in Berea, which he found another guy, one, another companion that he raised up from Berea. And then he also, Aristochus and Singundus from Thessalonica, they were evangelists. And they joined the team. Guys, we're here to serve our sister church. How awesome would it be if we raise up future evangelists who will go overseas? Or plant new churches? Or be their life group leaders? Or be their elder team? You never know, do you? Multiply the team. It's not just about converts. It's not we just go, we do our work, throw in the rat. We're saying, hey, we're coming here to make disciples. We want to come alongside our sister church to bless them, to strengthen them. And then we'll follow up. We want to follow up? Be sure to mention the cost. Do not hide it. Luke nine twenty three to 27, this is so important. Sometimes we try to make Christianity better than it needs to be. It is amazing. Again, it's amazing to those who are being saved, and it's awful. It's a stench of death, actually, to those who are perishing. And you can't help that. That's not your realm. Luke 9, 23 to 27 says, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will he is the one who will save it. For what is a man who profits who profited if he gains the whole world, but yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father. And the holy angels, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. In Luke 9, 57, to 62, you often meet this, these kind of people on the streets, and this is worth talking about. It's like you're almost there, and then they say something like this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Oh, this sounds amazing, doesn't it? And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes in the burrs of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, his next stop is not the Ritz-Carlton. And he said to, his, said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, and as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now this is not saying, now let me be clear here, this is not saying that hey, you just so happen to find someone on the streets or one of us on the, on campus and they're starting to follow God and they're coming to church and said, hey, look, you know, uh, my, my dad's not doing well and I need to, bu- uh, you know, I need to bury him. I need to, to do, he's sick and I want to be with him. No, hey, reject your dad and you need to follow the Lord, otherwise you're not in. It has nothing to do with that. There is a cultural issue happening here that we don't understand. What's happening here is that that this was the firstborn, and he needed when he buried his father, he's getting a lot of money. He's like, Jesus, look, look, when my dad dies, I can make you a lot of money, and maybe we can go to the Ritz-Carlton. You know, I know I understand you have no place to lay your hat, but I can make things pretty nice for you. And maybe you really help your ministry out. Maybe, you know, get things moving here. Though people will maybe listen to you a little bit more. You need a little help, honestly, if you ask me. He said, Look. Let the dead bury their own dead. Do not wait for your inheritance. Follow me now, because you may not have another chance. And then lastly, he says, another says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Guess what? If if these people went home, you know it's gonna happen. Some of you college students, you know. After a great fall, you get saved, you start going on mission, and then you go home for the summer, and then all of a sudden we don't see him anymore. I'm not saying that always happens, and I'm not saying that this is just the only application, but there's a level of truth there that sometimes your family will talk you out of it, right? Maybe the old boyfriend will talk you out of it. What in the world do you think you're doing? But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Not for everyone, is it? Why do we hide this from people? Do You think you're doing them a a service? You're trying to make Christianity better than it really is? Trying to go higher than the word? The gimmicks won't work anymore, guys. We need real disciples. John Piper says, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. And wimpy Christians simply won't survive the days ahead. Will they? We need an army of sons and daughters who understand what they signed up for. All right, love the band come up. We're going to close here. But last but not least, when you're courageous and you preach the truth and you invest in others, you will meet opposition. It's going to happen. In fact, if you haven't met opposition, you may not be fully living, or somehow compromising, watering things down. But you will endure opposition. You will upset the world. Why? Because John 3, 19 says, because they love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. That's why. I love that in verse 6. They were dragged out of the house. They had already gone. They'd slept over. They're smart. They're like, we gotta get out of here early. And they went to Jason's house and they pulled the whole household out. They're looking for Paul and Silas. They're looking for the mission team. And they said, look, these men are upsetting the world. They need to be brought to justice. They're causing a disturbance. And you don't understand that they were, at the time, they were committing one of the worst crimes anyone could ever commit. Treason against Caesar. Saying that there's another Lord here. We're in the nation's capital now and we're declaring there is another Lord And it's not Biden. It's Jesus Christ. Isn't it? And that loyalty will get you in trouble. That loyalty will get you in major trouble. It may not be the exact same as committing treason against Caesar, but it will eventually get there. History just has a habit of repeating itself. And we're slowly getting there. They were kicked out of the city. They no longer could come back. In fact, I'll make one comment here in Mark 12 and Luke 23. Really, the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sanhedrin made the same charge against Jesus. you are committing treason, and they used it for their own gain. To try to manipulate the Romans into killing him. So it's going to happen to us just in a different way, but anytime you are loyal to another system, other than the world system, you will find yourself upsetting the world. You'll upset your parents, you'll upset your boss, your coworkers, in fact, maybe even people in church. When you are loyal to one, it rattles, it rattles hell like nothing else. shakes it. Because what hell wants is compliance. And what Lord Jesus Christ wants is your obedience. And there lies the great battle, right? All right, let's close this down here. First Thessalonians, you know, Paul wasn't shaken because he's ready to go to the next city. And I, and I think that that's what uh, we need to have, that mindset. Hey, if I know it's good. Look, I am believing for salvations to happen in this city. But for whatever reason, unbeknownst to my understanding, we preach the gospel and there's no converts. We just go to the next one. Because we're not stopping. This train is moving with or without you. We've said that over and over again. And where do I find that? It's in the Bible. The violent take it by force. You know what that passage ultimately is saying when Jesus says that? The kingdom it needs to be, you need to fight to get in because it's hard to get in. It's, it's, it's difficult to get into the kingdom. He's saying that it's, it costs you everything. You have to lay it all. I mean, it will. It, there is such a battle over souls today that it will cost you everything to make it in the end, and it's not on your own strength. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God, of course. But he's saying, "Look, I got to keep going." First Thessalonians two eight seven to eighteen. This doesn't look like a depressed man. He just is a man who's going. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Oh, he loved that church. He loved us. all. He was kicked out. He could never go back. In fact, Jason made a pledge, and if he broke that pledge, Jason and his buddies would be killed. And so Paul knew I was the last time I'll ever see these guys. And I'm going to write him a letter, and I'm going to tell him this. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. yet got Satan hindered us. And they went to Berea, and what happened? And then the, the mob, as you even see today, there's always a mob. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. Even as they did from the, from the Jews, both, ki- both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Just like that, just like our introduction, isn't it? They are not pleasing to God but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But the wrath has come upon them to the utmost. God will give people over to their sin. In Romans 1, I can make an argument that that has already been done in America. He's given us over not only to sexual sin, but then the most gross kind and homosexuality. And then he just says, last but not least, I'm giving you over to a deluded mind. You ever talk to people on the streets? They're delusional. It's like they're not even there anymore. They've been given over. God's saying it's game over, but I have people there to save. That's the biblical mindset. That's what gives you confidence. That's what said, hey, look, I'm going to go and I'm going to be faithful today. I'm going to sow the seed and wherever it may land, God, I pray that it lands on the fertile soil. And We're going to trust you. Let me end with this quote from R.C. Sproul. It says, I preach expository sermons going word for word through the whole books of the Bible. That way I cannot pick and choose what I want to preach about because I am required to preach what is there in the text. If a subject comes... Before me that I'm not comfortable with, I can't skip over it because I'm committed to setting forth the word in its entirety. It's faithfulness. That sort of preaching is what people need because it is through the hearing of the word that Christ is made manifest. It is Paul showed in the people of Thessalonica, the message is Jesus in all his fullness. When the word is rightly preached, people will learn about Jesus. Whether from the Old Testament or the New Testament, All of it is about Jesus. And if we do this faithfully, maybe the next generation will look back at us and say, oh, they are the ones who upset the world and turned it upside down. Because that is what the word of God does. Guys, I want people to be saved in in this city as much as everybody else does. But it's not up to us, is it? Let the word do its work. Maybe you need one more charge from Second Timothy. You all know this one. This is my favorite. I think it's worth reading. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Why don't you stand up for this? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting their ears to be tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers. Oh, there are many on YouTube, aren't there? In accordance to their own desires. And will turn away from their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, future evangelists, Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. and Fulfill your ministry. Today is the day of salvation. That is what you're proclaiming today on the streets of D.C. And let God do his work, right? Amen.